0: Law, Policy, and Markets, I'm Alan Marks. Today, a special panel discussion recorded live with four energy executives looking at the questions and the complexities of energy storage.
1: In 2045, our 100% clean energy world, we better be prepared to have 30,000 megawatts across those three buckets. So this is development on a scale and then a growth rate that we need to continue to stay focused and pursue it very aggressively, frankly.
0: Let's get to it. Today's podcast episode was recorded live at a program on energy storage co-hosted by Millbank and Volatility in Los Angeles late in 2023. I sat down for an in the weeds discussion with four energy executives to look at the economics, regulatory policies, new technologies, and commercial viability of grid-scale energy storage projects now under construction or planned for the near future. We focused on California, which is more advanced than most states with respect both to energy storage and grid penetration of renewable energy. Here is the basic challenge in a nutshell. There has always been a mismatch between where power is generated and the load centers where it is used. Today, with the shift to intermittent renewable resources like wind and solar power, there is also a mismatch between when power can be generated and when it is needed. A critical part of the solution is long-duration energy storage. Inexpensive excess power off-peak can be stored in large batteries. The batteries are discharged to provide power when the demand outstrips supply and power prices would otherwise be higher. Modern energy storage facilities also provide ancillary services, including voltage control and congestion management for a smarter grid. But it's tricky to optimize where the batteries should be located, how they affect or are affected by transmission constraints, and how they can be economically operated to maximize grid reliability, efficiency, flexibility, and affordability, especially as demand patterns evolve with new EVs and more air conditioning at exactly the same time as the grid is being decarbonized. It's really important to get this right. Let's hear how our experts are approaching these complex issues with their companies.
1: Kathleen Colbert. I'm with Vistra. We are a Fortune 500 competitive power provider and competitive retail electricity provider. We have 37,000 megawatts in our portfolio, and we serve roughly 4 million retail customers outside of California. Inside California, we are very focused on our generation fleet, and I use generation kind of loosely. So we have about 1,180 megawatts of thermal assets and we also have a 750 megawatt, 3000 megawatt hour battery energy storage system that's located in Moss Landing. Our three existing sites are Oakland, Moss Landing, and we also own the Morrow Bay site. And I'm happy to talk
2: more. Thank you, Kathleen. Ahmad? I work for Calpine leading their energy storage program, which us investors try to complete who has the largest energy storage project <laughs> in the market. <laughs> so right now we're kind of winning. We, we we're building Nova, which is a, a large three gigawatt hour facility here in the state of California. Most landing expansion will will take even higher, so we'll have to find the next big project. My focus is on in technology and kind of oversee the technology advancement of batteries and new energy storage technologies. So I've like to, to think that I've worked in some of the most exciting projects in the industry. I've worked in New York, got the first permit there for a batch of project, kind of also worked in Toronto and in Canada, getting building kind of the first energy storage project to back a transportation system and a light rail transit, which was also exciting. And kind of taking it from an integrator side, I moved on to the to Calvine to work on the owner side and look at long-term operation and the issue that comes with that. So um, very excited to be here and talk to all of you. Good. Thank you very much. Howard. Hi, everyone. My
3: name is Howard Chang. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for AVA Community Energy. And if you're familiar with the CCA space, you may recognize this better as East Bay Community Energy. We actually just rebranded about a month ago. We serve Alameda County uh, just east of San Francisco and been expanding further into San Joaquin County and the Valley, which is a big driver for why we, we are in that rebranding process. I'm proud to say NREL recently recognized us as a top five green power provider in the country. So I say that both to brag, but also to note if you're buying that much renewable energy, you need to buy a lot of storage. And so <laughs> we're very active in the market doing standalone storage projects, solar and storage, and certainly focused on customer oriented programs like EV charging, behind the meter, solar and storage and such. So excited to talk a little bit more about that with you today. Good. Thank you, Harry.
4: Hi, I'm Karen Burns. I'm the chief executive at San Diego Community Power, south of L.A. Uh, We are the second largest CCA in the state of California. We have now over about a million customers by meter. So we're serving about half the load in all of San Diego, including the county. And we have a goal to get to 100% clean and renewable power by 2035 or sooner. It's in our founding documents. It's a policy that we have, and of course, storage is really important as part of that. We were proud to say we were two-thirds renewable and carbon-free in 2022, and a lot of that is solar and storage, as well as wind, and of course, standalone storage as well. So really excited to be here, wanted to make sure you knew about us. And San Diego, south of LA, we are the eighth largest metropolis in the uh, United States. So, and we are buying a lot of storage. So, thank you. Thank
0: you very much. So, I want to look, starting for all of you, at the California market, kind of as a whole, and then we'll get more specific as to locations in a moment. But if you look at the increasing reliance on our grid on zero carbon clean renewable energy, solar in particular, but also wind energy. And as we all know, the sun shines during the day, right? That's not exactly advanced (laughs) knowledge. Which means that as solar penetrates, we have increasing availability of solar power during the day. And wind may cover a bit of the late afternoon, early evening, as we still have high demand, especially in summer for air conditioning. But the solar starts to fall off pretty quickly. And if people were to, in the audience, take out their CalISO app, which I'm sure we all have on our phone, and take a look at any of the different days, we'll see this has a dramatic impact on The diversity of supply and the reliability at some point. And energy storage, of course, can bridge a lot of that. So we have these really an RA or resource adequacy driven market here in contrast to Texas or other places. So Howard, maybe can you give us kind of just a quick overview first of how
3: RA drives investments in storage here? Absolutely. For those that are focused in the California markets, there's a lot of time spent talking about resource adequacy, which is our form of capacity. And it is a regulatorily sort of structured and defined product and tries to ensure that there are enough resources generating in the state of California, specifically CAISO. A couple of interesting dynamics about resource adequacy here in California. Just a few years ago, it was a very buyer favorable environment for resource adequacy, historically low prices. And just in this last few years, uh, prices have spiked and are at historically high prices. I think for the development and generation sort of community, that's a good thing in terms of project financing and what you can secure and the value of having projects there available to to generate. So that's an interesting dynamic. A a couple other things just noteworthy in terms of resource adequacy and understanding the market. As you noted, there's an increasing penetration of renewable energy in the state of California When you combine that with retiring natural gas units, potentially drought conditions, which have been increasing in California, though this this season was certainly not a good example of that. But when you combine those things, you have an increasing need for storage and you have an increasing need for resource adequacy. And so there've been a lot of compliance-driven requirements to step up uh, resource adequacy procurements. CPUC has recently ordered about 18 gigawatts of new capacity over the next five years. I think it's about double that for the next 10 years. So that's just a tremendous amount of RA and capacity that's needed and being demanded by various load-serving entities. The third thing I'll I'll highlight is the regulatory regime, the framework for tracking RA is changing. We're in the midst of that. So we're moving from a historic framework where you're looking at peak demand to a slice-of-day framework where you're looking at the specific hours of the day to address the issue that you just noted, which is hour by hour. You have to make sure you have enough generating resources online.
0: Right. So if you're, carrying a load-serving entity, how does RA-driven storage create some challenges for you?
4: Yeah, the uh, RA market, as all of in California, is quite challenging uh, from a buyer's perspective. In addition to the weather that we spoke about and the hydro, we, we were very fortunate this year with hydro, but it, we have been in a historic drought. Uh, we also have an overall market, western region-wide, that's constrained with RA. So those sort of macroeconomic factors, including still coming out of COVID with the supply chain disruptions and the permitting issues, all of those macroeconomic issues. And on top of that, we have the CPUCs, self-inflicted wounds. Sorry if anyone's here, CPUC. But we have a couple of issues. One, the load capacity factor for solar and wind has decreased through some CP- CPUC decisions, and that's I mean less RA per resource for our renewables. We also had the PRM increase from 60 to 16% for the IOUs, the independent operators. And that's resulted in an effective PRM of like 20 to 22%. So that basically pulls RA out of the market. And then we had import restrictions. So there were some CPUC decisions that restricted imports coming in from outside of California. So we, you see we have this incredible need to grow and build our renewable capacity through all the state mandates we're having. But then we had some sort of conflicting legislation that results in tightening uh, the market. So those have been really challenging, and the prices have risen dramatically as a result. Will they stay this high? If I had a crystal ball, that would be great. I don't, but I do think that as some of those other macro factors ease, we should see some reductions in pricing.
0: Okay. And of course, Fingers lo-
4: crossed for the buyers.
0: Basically. And of course, location matters. I mean, and Kathleen, I'll talk to all of you as well if you have thoughts on this. But Kathleen, if you look at the difference, I, I want to start start with some of the projects you mentioned. You have standalone storage. And Correct. some of it is Oakland, for example, in the middle of a big load center, right? Correct. San Francisco Bay Area. But Moss Landing, Morro Bay, that's in the middle of the state. You've got flexibility as to whether that power goes north or south. That's a plus. But obviously also far away from the big Northern and Southern California load centers. What difference does that make as far as the economics?
1: It makes a huge difference. And if I also while I answer you, I'll expand a little bit on the market construct. So and I so I'm an economist which is also always helpful to know going into when I start talking about the multiple different pathways. but I my focus is on market policy and market design. And so we talk very loosely about capacity when we tend to have these conversations, but there's actually generally three capacity markets in California. So part of why it's so difficult for folks to integrate and why this is a challenging landscape is because you do have to be sophisticated. And you do have to understand that there is a long-term procurement market, which is integrated resource procurement. There is a local procurement market, which has both short-term, mid-term, and long-term resources all being procured for local areas through the central procurement entities for PG&E and SCE's service territories, but not San Diego, who handles their own. And (laughs) we appreciate that. It's very challenging. And then you have RA, and a lot of people are talking about RA prices. That's really a prompt year pricing signal. It's not a long-term, and it's really not even a mid-term. It is a prompt year, maybe prompt next signal. The RA market itself, that price is very sensitive to penalty risks that the buyers are exposed to. So when we see the price trends in RA, it has a lot less to do with development and anything in the development time frame. And it's really helpful to understand that. But for us in my locations, Oakland is in a local area. So development at the Oakland Power Plant site, which is located in Jack London Square, So I can also share that developing in an incredibly dense load area that has a ton of population traffic around it is a challenge. It's something that requires the development to be incredibly well done and planned out with safety as the number one priority for that site. And with that comes a lot of challenges and associated costs with ensuring that you have mitigated this any kind of safety risks to the greatest extent possible, given that local concentration. So when we think about where we're building, if it's local, right next to a load center, next to traffic, that's very different than developing in a rural area. So like Morro Bay, while it doesn't sound like it is close to a a big city, it's not. It is, however, a, a site that is located directly in the middle of this incredibly adorable village that is located on the coast of California in San Luis Obispo. I'll
0: vouch for that. It is adorable. It's really adorable.
1: <laughs> so it also has a very important thing. So when we think about building storage, safety is key. That's primary. And then from that is, can we get our power to the customers that need to be powered by that? and a huge part of that impacts congestion. So where you're located on the system, you may actually be pushing harder on constraints that are already binding because the load is pulling for their own uses. And so when we think about how we are managing and building storage, it is critical that we talk about congestion management and how we make sure that we are intelligently developing storage in locations that can provide the greatest value and or that we develop it with a mitigation plan. So what I mean by that is, you can develop storage in a location that is going to be increasing the draw on that transmission line, but if you also have a plan to site some generation nearby that's also behind that load pocket, then you can reliably deliver more generation, and that's value stacking. So when we think about where we're building on the system, transmission's number one, so we get deep into the transmission planning process and deep into the local capacity studies. And that's really key to drive a lot of the locational aspects of where you would site storage.
0: I want to stay with you for a second on that because I want to just help distinguish between the marginal cost of energy and the marginal cost of, of congestion. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you're co-locating your storage, say, with a solar plant. So if you've got solar generation co-located with storage and that's feeding into a line where maybe there's line upgrades. I mean, you have some economies of scale that can benefit from that You relieve congestion. By the same token, if you have too much storage that's outpacing the, the, the growth of the solar resource, you actually can have a negative impact. A little more about how that takes out?
1: Sure. So the way our transmission system w- works is that where you're located has a sensitivity to all of the transmission lines. We call those ship factors or distribution power transfer factors. So in certain locations, you either have a positive or negative, and that means to what you're talking about is in some locations, your output can either relieve a congestion or it can add to it, exacerbate or relieve congestion, right? And so when you're looking at a specific site, it is important to study what is your shift factor, both from an output and a charging perspective, because storage is bimodal, as we all know. So we are going to be charging as well as discharging. And in those different modes of operations, we're going to be affecting the constraints that we are approximate to. So the higher the shift factor, the closer you are. Or the more output or more charge is going to either leave or congest that constraint. And I know this sounds really nerdy, but it's incredibly important that everybody do this. Because if you don't, and you build an asset somewhere where it is going to increase the congestion when it charges, you're going to provide less value. When we say provide less value, what I mean by that is you're going to increase congestion, which you're going to make the cost, the local, so the marginal price at that location, the LMP, it is going to be higher. So when you charge, it will be more expensive. And when you discharge, you may also kind of have another kind of muting impact on the pricing when you discharge, which is good. But that really narrows the margin. And so when we're developing assets, we do... Project what is your energy and ancillary service revenues that you could receive over the lifetime or the contract, the lifetime of the contract that you're looking at. Because let's also be really real. California development hinges on mandated procurement and long-term resource adequacy contracts. But a huge part of providing value to the buyers in that contract is forecasting your ENS revenues that you can use to provide the most cost competitive offer if you're wrong in what that projection is, then that project is going to struggle and it's going to hurt. And so you really have to be mindful when you're developing up front and making that long-term offer to your buyer that you're thinking about it prudently because we want to provide the best offer we can, but you also need to make sure it's in a reasonable representation of your expected costs. Good.
2: Okay. Maybe to add on Please. what Kathleen mentioned. So Definitely one of the main issues is congestion. And, and as developers, I'm sure a lot, a lot of people thought about storage needed near load centers, near to relieve congestion and help with, with those issues. And, and a lot of the kind of early sites and maybe some of the existing sites as well do serve that purpose. However, as we're seeing on the interconnection process and, the, and the, some studies coming back, showing that if you're located near load centers and congested, congested areas, you could potentially be limited on your charge capacity. And that's going to create another issue for developers to look at in terms of, yes, you can discharge the capacity fully, deliverability, but when you charge, you're going to have to model it differently. Uh, so that's kind of a, kind of on the de- developer side, need to kind of consider all these different factors. Coming back to the comment about prices, that is going to affect the prices, right? I mean, that is w- one of the problems. There's many why the prices are elevated. And, and I think they're going to be elevated for a little bit is, the, Definitely that's one of the issues. Now it's really hard to cite good quality projects where do not have a lot of restriction that could impact your your modeling of revenues. So, If you
0: look at modeling, you look at forecast, clearly there is, there's a lot going on, right? So you've got the, in fact, it's bimodal. I want to stay with that for a second. It's historically, when we looked at reliability in California in particular, we looked at resource diversity. So you have hydro as a big chunk of the system that's always been important with hydrology now changing. The climate change The role of hydro is not as predictable, perhaps, as it was before, but still extraordinarily important. We used to have gas-fired plants. We obviously used to have nuclear base load, but much less than we had with songs shutting down and so forth. So there's this transition to a grid that's much more reliant on renewables. When you put storage in the mix, mentally thinking of it as a replacement for generation really misses a lot of what's important and unique about it. That bimodal piece, in one sense, generation is supplemented if you will. On the other hand, the batteries are also load. So when you look at them from a planning standpoint, and there's other things they provide, the ancillary benefits, the frequency regulation, the the very short-term load balancing that they can provide. Do you think the value that they provide in all those different areas to you is being captured by the economics of market design here, or should it be different?
3: I think it's hard to model and forecast, to your point. There's a lot of analytics that go into valuing different resources as a buyer when you're trying to build your portfolio. Your point on diversification is a really critical one and we're obviously getting more concentration in renewable generation resources and therefore a need for storage assets to come online as well. So we diversify through, obviously there's contract structures that you can do that with and then there's definitely siting and location-based diversification specifically for storage. And so we want to do storage that is perhaps at retiring gas units, so those have large interconnection existing sites, and it makes sense that those will transition to clean storage. And then we're looking to couple storage, specifically with solar, which has a very different risk profile that you're generating there, and you have a lot more control around when you charge and discharge as a result of that. And then, of course, you're also doing standalone storage that are not at existing sites, but new greenfield development, and that may not be coupled at solar areas, but in solar regions. And so then there's different risk factors, thinking about congestion and how those assets will perform as well. So, And and then of course adding in an urban environment which has different cost profiles, but obviously being close to the load, doing local development is something that we have a lot of interest in. There's a lot of different ways to diversify that risk, but I think it's at the end of the day, it's really hard to get the numbers right. We'll do what we can to model that and forecast that. And we have to account for that as we do resource selection. But I don't think anyone in this room would claim, yeah, we, we have the numbers right. It's, how do you predict ancillary service value? How do you predict total prices and when to charge and discharge? So I think the key for as a load surfing entity and as a buyer is to really have resource diversification in terms of location and the types of locations that you have there, not just geographically spatial, but where those are cited and how those were cited.
4: Yeah, I think Howard did a great job of explaining that. And we think along a lot along those same lines, you know, when we look at wind, one thing I would add is when we look at wind, we're actually looking at how it can come on to help with some of those peak hours here in San Diego. So we like to buy wind in New Mexico, Arizona, even though we have a, a very strong local procurement need, we also have to balance the cost with the time with storage and so it's this incredible balancing act. I mean, we have grown our power services team has grown from a team of 2 to 10 in the last 12 months and to your point load forecasting, we do our best, we check it, cross check it, but you never know. Like we had a wonderfully mild summer in San Diego. We are not expecting that coming up.
1: I think this is such a good question and I really appreciate hearing you guys talk about it from your perspective from a planning. So I I spent four years at the Kaiso, and so I've been away for a little while. But I will say that operations is a fascinating part of this puzzle. And in the operational space, we see a lot of things that they they don't perfectly match planning. And it's just the truth. But it's why we need a feedback loop where, where we look at the actuals and we allow that to feed back into our forecasting practices so that we continually get better. And if it's all right, I'm going to give a to the CPUC for one second and say that I actually think that the Integrated Resource Planning team is one of the best teams that I and I really appreciate the way that they are being leaders in this space. That I so if we kind of look back to where we've been and where we've gone where we are now today, the first big piece of legislation that was passed to put storage on the map was AB Assembly Bill 2514 which was passed in 2010. The CPUC set the procurement for that in 2013 to begin to come online 2020 through 2023. So everything we've been seeing in the last few years is really the operationalization and and coming to fruition of plans that were set in 2010. And I think it's super important to keep that in mind. It took 13 years, but it took 10 years from the procurement target to get really to over that the, the target was 13.25, and in 2021 we had roughly 1,400 megawatts of storage, so we killed it, the goal, which is great. And as of now, we're at 5,000, and so we're developing even faster than those targets. Well, part of that is is that their assumption. So, a big part of that was that procurement target was not based on any kind of study. It was actually a number. It was, it was a number that was picked, and. The CPUC only really only set up their IRP team to start doing the, these studies in consort with consultants in 2016. So where we are to think about how where we were and where we are now is that we are seeing them produce on a regular basis updates to those studies and improving all of their assumptions. The last few years, they assumed 11,000 megawatts of imports. Karen talked about how we've been struggling to get imports in certain times. They ratcheted that down to 4,000 megawatts to be better aligned to what we're actually seeing in an operational space. So that's the best practice of taking what we see in operations and feeding it back in. And I just, I continue to encourage them to improve what they're doing. One other thing that they did this year, although it's proposed, is in the 2023 preferred system portfolio, they again are continuing to improve. So what they have done is they've separated out the long duration bucket that was a bit confusing, I think, to some about whether or not the intent was to stack lithium ion, or if it was to invest in new technologies that could support a long duration. And so they have separated these out. So now in our plans, we have four hour lithium, eight hour lithium, and long duration, eight hour or more of other types of technologies. And when you mention diversification, I'll share one of my concerns with that, is that when you, it's clear that we need to build a lot of storage. So where we're at today is 5,000 megawatts. By 2028, the plan is saying we need 10,000. So we better be ready and stay focused to double what we have done in the last 13 years in five years. And then as we move out from 2028 and 2035, it gets closer to 19,000 or 20,000 that we need from these three different buckets. In 2045, our 100% clean energy world, we better be prepared to have 30,000 megawatts across those three buckets. So this is development on a scale and a growth rate that we need to continue to stay focused and pursue it very aggressively, frankly, to make that work.
0: And if you look at those numbers, that's interesting, because we got from 500 to 5,000 in, in storage in California in a very short period of time. In the cal report that came out in July has some pretty impressive curves. But I think the role of imports makes a big difference, because California, historically, for decades, I remember personally working on the BRPU process and deregulation in the late 90s and early 2000s, and looking at the role that imports play, because California sucks in about 25% of its needs, from Northwest Hydro, and Arizona Nuclear, and of course, Southwest, and historically, from fossil fuels in, say, Wyoming and Utah. And as you move to storage more here, if the question would be, does California need to depend as much on imports as it did historically? And if so, what economic difference does that
2: make? Yeah, I I can't take a shot. I'm sure you guys are more expert in this than than me from a technology side, but just my view of the market here is that neighboring states are also have shortage. So ability to basically transfer energy or uh, export energy to California is tightening as well. So I think there is a need, and and I'm sure the Kaiso and and the different players in in the California market are realizing that. I mean, year over year, you're going to have to depend on less imports and start kind of utilizing your own resources, right? So I think building a new generation Facilities takes time, renewables is the fastest, the greatest, but it comes with the need for storage. So I think that's where California realized that to expand on our generation and within state generation, we have to compile that with storage. So just a couple of points I want to comment on the previous discussion around the utilization or the planning. I agree, it's super difficult. I mean, it's really hard, and I I, I do not wish to be in your position <laughs> to do this. <laughs> However, I do view that as, as also some kind of areas of improvement. I mean, the ELCC regulation is really devaluing storage, even though that the storage actually presents more value that should be rewarded for, rather than be penalized with the LCC kind of regulation. So on, on that, I think the other side is with storage procurement is I think there is an interest or a kind of higher interest from off-takers and CCAs, including others, to go for tall agreements, which do not fully utilize the storage facility to its fullest. So we're as developers and, and as technology leaders, we're we're being asked to perf- to give you kind of a gold plated project that's going to be used, like, very lightly. So so I think one other area of improvement, and you t- fully utilize the benefit of storage, really procure what you need, rather than procuring the gold plated product and then use it less. So I think kind of giving developers and operators a chance to optimize based on what they need is going to be also improve the, the, the utilization of the energy storage. Right, so buy a, a really good, useful EV for <laughs> every day, not a... Sports car to sit in the garage and too much.
0: on weekends. Yeah. Karen, in looking at planning and then looking, kind of picking up on some of these mm-hmm. points, what about smaller scale storage closer to load so, and microgrids and the way that those might tie together?
4: Yeah, so we we have a goal that 15% of our energy will be procured locally. And so that's within San Diego County, Riverside County, and Imperial County as well. And so we sort of have a both and approach. We are looking at large scale standalone storage paired. We're also looking at distributed energy resources. We have a feed-in tariff that I believe we're updating in Q1 that will send a better signal to the market. We have an RFO, RFIs out, asking for projects that are can be built locally. The cities, a couple of things I want to touch on from conversation. One of the reasons that we're, we're seeing so much clean energy development from the CAs is because we were created by cities and municipalities who said, we want to move faster than the IOUs. We want to get to cleaner, greener, faster. And so the cities created through their climate action plans. So they built these climate action plans. All of our member agencies have one. I'm sure all of yours do as well. It's kind of the foundational document is how do we decarbonize our area? And in doing that, when they look at that plan, they say, oh, we have to have a CCA so they can be agile, they can be innovative, they can think about storage, they could do all these different things. So that's something that... I know I've I've digressed a little bit, but I think it's really important to understand that the cities have come together, they've created these agencies, and our goal is to get to 100% clean and renewable. And so we're invested in battery storage and supporting it and watching the cost curve come down where it's possible. We're also really interested in long duration storage and different technologies, right? Just like we wouldn't want our portfolio to have only solar in it or only storage in it. We, we don't want storage to be only one type, one technology. So there's a really interesting project we have our ion in. It is a zinc bromide and, and a flow battery technology that is at the the site of the Viejas Casino on the Kumiai tribal nation land and it's a 60 at a 60 megawatt project and it's got a 12 hour float for that long duration storage. And of course, we look at that, we say, okay, I bet that's expensive. But the CEC has a program thinking about how the four hour, the eight hour and the long duration was split out. The CEC has put a hundred, like a hundred million dollars into the Epic grants to help bring those new technologies down to cost parity. So in that case, I think it was a twenty million dollar grant that went to that project to help create a micro grid for that area to support the casino and to have more resiliency. So I think where, think about where energy sovereignty is really important where resiliency is really important then those microgrids and those different types of battery technologies can really make sense and with support from our government from support from the CEC we can start to bring some of those costs down so they're at parity and it's just a really exciting project and i think it had a lot to do with what you were saying the CPC separated those out the CEC took on that it's an exciting project you should definitely look at it if you're looking at different technologies and saying how do i support these higher costs well, that's where the CEC grants can really come in and support that work.
3: If I could just touch on something yeah. there real quick. Karen noted the sort of accelerated decarbonization targets that a lot of the cities have, and that being one of the drivers of creating CCAs. And I just want to speak to something there related to sort of behind-the-meter resources and how that plays a role here as well. Uh, when, when people think about local government, they don't always think, oh, these are the fast-moving folks that are going to accelerate things. But you know, with our CCAs, which are sort of quasi-governmental agencies that really operate with a lot of independence, When you actually combine sort of the partnership that we have with our local jurisdictions, the cities and the counties, there actually is a tremendous amount of value there specifically in that behind the meter distributed energy resource space because so much of that development is dependent on permits and siting and code and governments really control that. And so something that we've done, and I know other CCAs have as well, is really partner a lot on what are the codes for, for, for permitting and accelerating that and reducing some of the bureaucracy and red tape in that process. And another thing that we've done as an example is for our EV charging, which is one way to help balance some of the different, the challenges with generation profiles and load profiles, is to try to time that with a coincident optimal sort of charging. Would
0: that include plans
3: for bidirectional charging? Uh, it would. I mean, obviously, some of that technology ultimately, is ultimately, in development. It's right. there, but I think it needs to get further penetration in the market. But the way that we really play, a, a, I think, a valuable role is we work with our cities to find siting. And we, as the load serving entity, also work to set the rates in order to mm-hmm. try to ensure that charging happens at a time that makes sense. And we're focusing on doing that for sort of public charging services for multifamily housing, lower income segments. And so that's an area that we've really been focusing our time, and I think something that just sort of highlights why CCAs can play a unique role, working specifically with the governments and local agencies, local jurisdiction, to to try to facilitate some of these programs and behind-the-meter resources.
0: I want to stay with rates for a minute, and with your permission to stay with the CCAs for a second, because we talked about tax credits and whether they can be monetized for by private developers and where the value goes. right? Does the value go, is it captured by a pass-through to an ultimate user? Is it captured by an intermediary, whether that's a load serving entity or somebody else, is it captured by the manufacturers or is, is is the developer just getting squeezed? Where does that where should that value sit? Because it seems like at every stage of the value chain. And of course as a government entity, you could also consider, I know your asset light, but you could consider owning and using direct pay yourselves if there's an economic benefit to that and the risk portfolio to that, profile to that makes sense. How do you approach that from the governmental side? looking at the options around tax equity and how that impacts potentially or helps potentially
3: affordability to your ratepayers. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about this before. I know that IRA and all that it offers, there's still always more to figure out with that. But it does unlock an ability for a tax-exempt entity like ours to actually own assets. And obviously, historically, we've done third-party PPAs because we're not tax-efficient. Obviously, we have nothing to sort of offer in that regard. So, it's really interesting right now as we're considering asset ownership. And while we have historically had a sort of balance sheet light approach, and that's been really good from a risk management perspective, on the topic of diversification, I think we absolutely want to own assets. And certainly as, as public agencies representing cities or our member cities certainly know about owning assets and have that comfort level with owning assets. So I don't think it's a stretch for us to do that. I think we want to make sure that we're managing the risk of actually owning and operating assets, which historically we haven't done. But I think storage is really an area that makes a lot of sense. I think on the generation side of things, we have other tools that allow us to monetize some of that value through things like energy prepays. But through storage, specifically standalone storage, we don't have that tool. So actually being able to monetize that and and take ownership of that asset has some some real value there.
4: I would say for us, we're younger. We're about just coming up on four years old. We're building our reserves. We're aiming to get a credit rating by the end of next year. And so asset ownership is sort of on the radar, but it's not yet in our strategic plan. And it would certainly be a conversation we'd have with our board uh, about where and when would it make sense to do that? And then... Would it be price competitive with what the folks here in this room and other developers could bring to the table? And it, on a risk-adjusted basis, there may be specific situations where developers won't go, where it might make sense for us to go. That might be some behind-the-meter DERs. I know some of our cities are looking at building their own uh, build sort of build-operate-transfer uh, type of DERs on their municipality municipal buildings. Uh, so I, I think it's I think it's really going to be a combination, but it's kind of makes sense because for us and for Ava as well, we're very community driven. We have the unique ability to set rates to to send the right price signals to encourage people to shave out of the the canyon, as folks are talking about, to like use energy during the canyon and to shift it out of the peak into the canyon. I mean, we're going to I think we'll see from our perspective a lot of. We just hired someone who is a rate design expert. And so we're going to be start right now. We kind of pair it with sdg and does. Again, we're four years old. We're just getting started. But the goal would be to start developing our own rate design and sending our own price signals to encourage DERs, the adoption of storage, you know, proliferation of storage, VPs, flex load. There's all kinds of things that we're really excited about doing both on the residential level, the municipal build, building level, the commercial level, and then standalone assets. So I think it's going to be a case-by-case basis. I don't think we're going to jump into asset ownership. It adds to the risk profile. Uh, It may not make sense financially. We're going back to customers, like customers and the rates that they pay, right? That's really important to us. So we're always balancing how we get greener with how we stay reliable with what Are we asking our customers to pay? And San Diego has the most expensive rates in the country already. So we have the second most expensive rates in the country, and we want to focus on that as well. So it's this balancing act, and it changes. The volatility is a perfect name for this event because it's very volatile in all the different aspects. This constant, there's constantly changing, whether it's regulatory, legislative, the market dynamics, the macro dynamics, the RA market, I mean, it's just, it's a constant.
0: So we have regulatory, legislative volatility both caused and mitigated by a lot of changes. I want to look at technology for a second, on. Look at, is there overinvestment right now in four-hour storage? Is long-duration storage stuff which is going to come along quicker than we think? And technolo- when you look at different technologies, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you think Will come about that we should be focusing on now more than we are.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Alan. Long-duration technologies are still a little bit ways out. So I've I've been personally reviewing a lot of technologies. I've looked at more than 35 companies in the space of new tech and kind of non-lithium-based storage, battery storage technologies. And there are some late-stage developments. There are projects that or technologies that are maybe ready to be deployed as pilots or kind of larger megawatt scale pilots and, and as CalPine we're actually interested in that and we'll be implementing pilots in the near future here in California as well new technologies however there are few key issues with the new, newer technologies and maybe more than few so let's look at I, I'm not going to maybe price is not my biggest concern right now because we all understand that technology advancement and as we learn as technology OEMs learn they, they improve and we've seen that with lithium-ion. I mean four years ago I mean we or five years ago, we were talking about four or five hundred dollars kilowatt hour batteries, so now we're talking about much less. So, the price will come around eventually, of course, except some technologies who are relying on very rare earth metals, and those are not going to come down because we know the mining and the industry and the rare earth metals is only going up. But let's look at performance from a technical standpoint. A lot of the newer technology, or most of them, cannot compete. Kind of head-to-head with lithium-ion from a performance standpoint. We're talking about round-trip efficiency, for example. I mean, a lot of these have much higher self-discharge rates or or conversion losses. So with lithium-ion, I mean, it's typical to look at on a battery level, look at 97, 96% RTE on a battery level. On a system level, you're looking at anywhere between 85 to to 90. But let's just focus on the on on the battery level. With newer technologies and all the technologies I've been reviewing. I haven't seen any that pushes 80% on a battery level, which take the system down to the 70s of RTE. So you're going to have to live with that reality, unfortunately, and other performance metrics like energy density. I mean, that's a big problem, especially for a state like California. I mean, there's not a lot of land that you can develop projects on, and, and you're constrained. So when it comes to, to energy density, there are, there are cases 10 times less the energy density as lithium. So that presents a challenge which will force you to take those technologies and implement them far away from the load centers, and then you get to other issues that we just talked about, right? So there, there are other Issues as well related to maintenance, even supply chain and, and ecosystem. Right, a lot of these technologies rely on some technology that do are, are not largely applied in the U.S. And, and will require a lot of kind of development of supply chain and and expertise. The good news is a lot of these newer technology is in the U.S. or North America, let's say. So maybe that brings you to the energy security uh, Karen mentioned earlier. Other, I mean, I don't want to be pessimist. I mean, other good stuff about long-duration storage and the new technologies are longer operational life. I mean, a lot of the newer technology are kind of pushing... Beyond the 20 year life cycle of lithium ion batteries or, or uh, 25. So I'm very hopeful. I mean, even though at this point, maybe as we're standing here, sitting here today, talking about the technology that's not ready, but I would say in the near future, potentially some technologies will break out, will be hard to apply in the California market, given some of the issues I mentioned on the longer term. I'm more hopeful. So. That's kind of my view of of the technology. We continue to reevaluate, but just to people to keep in mind on on how difficult it is to scale up technology. Just think of solid state batteries. That's been in talks for over 15, 20 years, and solid state batteries are still maybe five to 10 years out. So it, it just takes time. Lithium did not start yesterday. Lithium started 30 years ago to reach scalability and and, and performance levels that we are in today, and lithium can improve. Right now, I'm just actually walking in today from another conference talking about lithium batteries, and Professor Stanley, who's considered one of the founders of lithium-ion batteries, have highlighted that energy density that we have today are only 20% of what lithium can actually provide. So we're looking at maybe potentially five times higher energy density on lithium ion, which is going to be really hard to compete against. And when that happens and when the research really advances to, to apply to those, I see lithium being here for a little while, the next few years, and even longer duration storage. We've seen the recent RFPs for eight hour and longer duration. LFP was the technology that got selected. However, I think when we start looking at the multi-day or seasonal storage, I think that's when lithium does not become the dominant technology. I think that's when we start looking at different technologies. To your question, uh, Alan, with the increased generation in California uh, for solar and, and the canyon curve the kind that we're, we're looking at. I think there's going to be a lot of excess energy that needs to be shifted over a longer period of times, not just day to day. We're looking at about weeks and days. I think that's when these technologies are going to come in handy. And hopefully when, when we get to that point, these technologies will just arrive at the same point and, and hopefully be deployed. So. so you want a lightning rod on a magic battery that lasts for a year.
0: Yeah. <laughs> lightning bolt hit. Kathleen, when you look at the same question. Yeah. And you look at the potential for longer duration storage, look at other things that you're dealing with. At what point do we go from our duck curve to our canyon curve and back up to a Mesa plateau, if ever?
1: That depends on a lot of things that has more to do with, I think, the macroeconomics point that Karen is raising. I think where we get to a flat curve is under a multi-BAA market and potentially maybe under the RTO light, but really more under an RTO. So from our perspective, regional transmission organizations is how you would get to getting the load and resource diversity. You would need to kind of see that flat MESA. I think it'll flatten though. Over time, as we change our portfolio, the plans are meant to try to flatten it. So if you trust the forecast and you trust the planning, that is the goal. But that is why you see a lot of the leadership at the state looking to other states, asking them to join multi-state compacts, right, and to pursue this Western governance pathway initiative that is currently in play, which was facilitated largely by California identifying that they want to coordinate with multiple states and there's not a good option to facilitate that right now. But if you don't mind, Alan, I also want to mention on this point of long duration and give a couple data points because I think that what is difficult is when you look at the the most recent portfolio, the other technologies, it's only 300, 500 megawatts. We're not even getting up to a gigawatt, right? So the signal that is being sent in the modeling is that the cost and the economics doesn't pencil out. And I'll just share from our perspective, I agree with Ahmed, that's also what we see in the commercial space. It's nice when the regulatory studies sync up a little bit. And and that's a big issue. So, but So how do we kind of start to move down the path? So my first point, how do we start to move down the path? The kind of projects that Karen, you're talking about, distribution level projects is really important. And So distribution-level projects, pilot projects that have some state grants or federal grants, that is sorely needed because what we don't have is economies of scale in this development space. And economies of scale is sorely needed so that we can increase our learning by doing capacity. And as we increase that learning by doing, that is how we drive down capital costs. And through driving down capital costs is how we're going to start to see larger megawatts show up. In these plans. And we really need to see that to have a diversified portfolio. Because if you look at the long term, the 2045 state is 15 gigawatts of four hour lithium and 15 or 16 of eight hour lithium and 500 of other technologies. That is not diversified. And so when we think about diversification and how we manage our risks, I think that's incredibly important. And the other thing I want to note is that from an asset owner perspective, diversification, not just how, like, from a fleet perspective, from an asset owner, diversifying our fleet is really important to us. Diversifying our risks, round-trip efficiency diversifications, I think, has some value. We also see some safety risk mitigation aspect of different technologies have different safety profiles, safety risk profiles. That's also something that would be of value to diversify and kind of manage that way. And so there's lots of things, that, ways that we can think about it. And as an asset owner, we are. We are interested in moving forward into the long-duration space, but we're not there. I think the studies that say 2028 is when it starts to happen are rooted in some logic. And I, perhaps my last little factoid would be that and take this for what it's worth, this is Kathleen's mystic ball. And <laughs> because there's a great deal of uncertainty. Because we
0: started with Karen rejecting your credit. Yeah, so, so I'm going <laughs> to take it. to pass it. it to you for the last
1: Thank you. Hour. I'm going to take it and say that there's a lot of uncertainty in the interconnection space. And it's one of the biggest log jams to this entire discussion. And so cluster 14, our super cluster, and cluster 15, our even bigger super cluster, super, super super, super (laughs) cluster, that logjam has really stopped the wheels turning. So assuming that we get those wheels turning again in 2024, at best, a long lead time project is 2028, more likely 2029, 2030. I mean, that's why we have been intervening at the CPUC to try to get some extensions and relief for the LSEs that we partner with to be able to look out through 2031, because just practically speaking, you cannot hit a COD really for a long duration new technology that has to interconnect through the KAISO. And uh, for those who may not know, cluster 14 didn't have a lot of long duration. It really didn't have almost any, it was mostly lithium ion with the expectation cluster 15 and 16 would start to get these new technologies. So this logjam has really derailed a lot of what we're thinking about. So as we think about when do things happen, it is logical that if we're going to have cluster 14 projects roll out first, we're going to see four-hour lithium at scale at a very aggressive pace through 2028, which is how we're going to get. And I I think we will get from 5,000 to that 10,000-ish target by 2028.
2: Good. Yeah, I want to add to Kathleen's points. I'm sorry, maybe we're (laughs) taking too much time talking (laughs) about that new technology. But the other point to be considered as well is lithium-ion had its issues in the early stages. I mean, it had its runtime, the frequency procurements in the Midwest was a great example for how these units were installed, had their failures, their issues, but then managed to kind of learn from their lessons, lessons from Catherine points. The problem with the market structure in California, there's a lot of penalties on performance and a lot of high expectations on these projects to perform which leads every developer to go for a trusted technology that's been in the market for a while. So it's really a hindering the adoption of new technology. Mm-hmm. Hence, the, or these technology providers for the long duration storage don't have the enough investment or for them to go and invest more money to advance those technologies. Glad to hear about the project you mentioned, Karen, and I hope there's more of those come along because those technologies will need their opportunity to shine. They're, they need to kind of give it a chance to... First of all, have some runtime, gather some operational data so they can improve the technologies, it in a real-time, like real-life application on the grid and learn from it. And I don't think any of those technologies had those opportunities at this point. So, so definitely a great point on, on, on kind of regulatory support for those technologies. Give me a hand for this excellent panel. Thank you all very much. Thank,
1: Thank you. you. Okay. Good
0: job. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.